The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Kings 18, 17 through 46. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. He is, either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up 
to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. God, we uh, hear and read this ancient text, and we believe it. And we need your spirit to help us believe even more in a time of of our own drought, so to speak. We need to have faith greater than ever that you are real, that you care for us, that you provide a rescue. We believe, Holy Spirit, that you are here today to help us see that even greater. Amen. Brent, thank you for reading. It's a long passage, but it's also the apex of the Elijah-Elisha story. Most Old Testament scholars, most Bible scholars would agree, really, if you look at the entire Old Testament, like this account is it. This is the, you know, the game of the century. This is the big deal. And one of the reasons it's so big is you have the God of Baal, or gods as they say in this text, versus Yahweh, the true God. And it's really idolatry uh, taken on right, right in its face. And I just want to process with us as we think about this passage, what is idolatry? What's going on in this passage? What's going on in our own hearts? Um, as, I've mentioned, as we mentioned before, Baal is a god, and there are many different versions of Baal. But Baal is a god who really brought the weather. That was the belief. As the seasons would change, the belief was that Baal uh, was the reason for the harvest, the reason for the springtime, the reason for all the seasons. And it's interesting how idolatry works because God is the one who gave us all those things. Okay. That's too loud in here. Can we turn it down in here? Sorry, everybody. Okay. All right. It's going to be really loud in here. Um, uh, So let's just start all the way over. Brent, you want to come back? Idolatry. Okay, you have to turn it down just a hair. I'm sorry. Sorry, everybody at home. Turn your computers up. We'll work on it. Brent's working on it. I think our modern view of idolatry is I have a good thing. I'm going to name a few idols of our culture. We love our children well. We love our careers well. We love our spouses well. We love whatever it is. But an idol is when we take that thing and make it the thing, right? That's what our modern view of idolatry is, at least in Christendom. But we also know other religions presently worship idols, like actual things, and Baal had that element to him. He, it was, it's really this unfair thing. Baal, who doesn't even exist, it's not even a real thing at all, gets the credit 
for the beauty of God's creation. We just sang, it is my father's world. And yet what's happening is our hearts often give the credit to this false God. And so as we look at this passage this morning, here's what I want us to notice. Our hearts are often looking for rescue in anything other than God. Tom mentioned it in his confession that our hearts in the moment of this pandemic are looking to so many things, what medicine might work, what technique might work, what tactic might work. And these are really good things. But what God is calling us to do, and he's calling this audience to do in 1 Kings, is to seek him first. And he's giving us a fresh opportunity. Here's the challenge for this morning. God is giving us a fresh opportunity to trust him completely in this pandemic and all the, how the havoc before us. So let's look, that up, look at that this morning. Three points set up the setup of the story, the solution in the story, and then there's a secret in the story as well. Uh, so we'll look at those three things. This, let's just start with this setup. Uh, we all heard it read. You probably are familiar with the story, but I think some reminding is helpful. Ahab, last week we discussed Ahab is looking for Elijah. If you remember, if you're just tuning in, you don't even know who these people are, let me explain. Ahab is an evil king and he marries Jezebel, and they bring in this religion, and it becomes so pronounced. And so God brings Elijah in chapter 17, and he goes to Ahab, and he says, there's not going to be any rain until I pray for rain, which I doubt Ahab believed. We don't know. And then Elijah disappears. The problem is it wasn't a week or two weeks or a month or two months. It was three and a half years. And so in that time, Ahab's doing everything he can to find this guy, Elijah. And so last week we saw him send Obadiah, another prophet in his house, who's actually a God-fearing prophet, to go look for grass. Ahab goes the other direction, if you'll remember from last week. And Obadiah and and Elijah meet, and Elijah's like, hey, go get Ahab. Tell him I'm ready to have a conversation. And Obadiah freaks out, remember? Remember? Well, finally, this week, we're following up to that. Obadiah does obey, goes and gets Ahab. Ahab meets Elijah, and you would think he would just want to tear him to pieces, just cut him down. But instead, here's what he says. Verse 17, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And it's a very fascinating technique, because if you're Elijah, you did pray for a drought, and you spent three years or maybe two of those three years with the widow at Zarephath and saw her own child die, and you revived him, and you have probably felt the weight of this drought. And now you come up to Ahab, and what perfect cunning to blame him. And I think that's just, I want to note that as we move forward, that, that oftentimes there are these half-truths when someone else is really the reason for sin, oftentimes there's this shame that comes in and says, you troubler, you did this. Well, I want you to note Elijah's response, and I encourage us to use his response rather than doubting ourselves in these moments. He just looks back at um, Ahab and says, You, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. We're at verse 30, 18. I have not troubled Israel, you have, and your father's house. And why? Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. 
He's reframing that accusation. And I just want us to realize we get accusations all the time. A lot of times from inside our own bodies, our own thoughts, our own shame. And what the encouragement is here is Elijah is able to stand solid by faith in the face of Ahab and who knows what army is with him, we don't know, and just say, no, you're the trouble. And he speaks truth. And then he lays down a challenge, right? And you all know the challenge. We've seen the story. But basically, you go get your prophets. I'll be the single prophet. And we'll kind of have this battle and we'll see who's going to win, who's God's real. And that's the setup. But I want to draw you to the second part of this setup that's important is uh, who is the audience and you think it's Ahab, and you think it's maybe the prophets, but it's not. It's the Israelites, the people whom we relate to. Listen to verse 21. Now he's talking, Elijah, to the congregation, and he says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you waver? How long will you do this? And the point there is these people that he's talking to have not left God out. They think they're followers of Yahweh. But what what Elijah is showing is, no, they're not, because they have let seek in these false idolatries that they've also are letting rescue them. Uh, Think of uh, Joshua, famously, where at the very end of the letter of of the book of his name, he says to the tribes, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, I will serve, we will serve the Lord. And we also know famously, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, right? And then also in Matthew 12, 30, he's having an interaction with Pharisees who are accusing him of being filled with the devil. And he's explaining that that's impossible. And then in verse 30, he says this, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the setup of this entire account is this. We are prone to follow God, believe in Jesus, but our hearts are often infected by other things, infusing those things with something that isn't even there, giving life, false life to things that are inanimate. Um, Netflix's stock has gone up. Anyone has heard this? I heard this from Eddie. We love Netflix. One of the things at least several of us are watching in our house is The Crown, Last night, yes, I think it was yesterday, maybe two days ago, we saw my favorite episode to date. Uh, I'm going to just break it down for you. Uh, Prince, Phil, Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth are now in their like 40, I don't know, they're in their, it's 1969, so however old they are today, minus all those years, is how old they are. That's how old they are in this episode. Maybe 40 years ago, was that 50 years ago? They're in their 30s, okay. It's 50 years ago. So celebrate that. And Prince Philip is, as you know, he just has nothing exciting in his life. But this is the moon landing episode. This is the episode where they're going to target the moon landing. And, and Prince Philip is like an aviator himself. And he becomes enamored. And, and the episode is beautifully shot where you see just the actor is able to just exude adoration for what's going to happen with this moon landing. And then there's also a juxtaposition with that reality and how much he hates religion. He goes into this local, I guess they have a local church on their property, and, and the, the gentleman that's the, they call him the dean, but he's the, pre, the, the, uh, the priest, I guess, Anglican priest. 
is just really, really old and boring. And, and Prince Philip's like, this is ridiculous. So they hire a new guy. A new guy comes in in this episode and asks for a, a building on the property where he can host a lot of burnt, burnt out pastors. And so they're going to gather there. They bring Prince Philip in to say, look what you've given us, this place. And he sits down in the group and they all begin to share their heart. And uh, he finally, you think he's going to have a breaking moment where he acknowledges, he's like, this is a waste. I'm using my own paraphrase here. I didn't research the exact, but this is a waste. You sit and read and you sit and talk. You need to be people of action. Right now they're landing on the moon and you're sitting in this room and clean up this mess and he walks out the door. And as a pastor who has heard that accusation many times, I felt exposed. But as the scene, as the episode wears on, um, he's tracking the moon landing. People and his family will sit down for parts of it. I felt very much, this is me with documentaries in my house. Like people will hang out for about five minutes and then they're gone. But I'm like locked in. He's locked into this moon landing and you can just see every cell in his body wishing he was on that moon. And afterwards, when the three astronauts are going out on a tour, they come by Buckingham Palace, and he gets 15 minutes. And he gets in this room with them for 15 minutes, and he's just, they're all having a party before the 15 minutes. He's writing out his questions. He can't wait to meet these men who've stood on the moon. They've been as close to God as anybody. And they come in this room, and this scene is so amazing. I'm ruining it if you've not seen it, so sorry. It happened in 1969. Um, he, he begins to interact with these men, and the, question, the answers are just stale. Finally, he's like, what was it like? I don't mean technically, but just what did you feel? And one of the guys, well, I'll be honest with you, we were so focused on the science and how, you know, all this and that, and he's just, you can just see him crashing down emotionally. And he looks down at the questions. There are several more, and they said, anything else? And he's like, no. And the session ends. And then the next scene, I believe it's the next scene, he's in a room with those same burnt out ministers. And he's just sitting there. And he looks at them and he's beginning to share and he says, I need help. I need help. In that moment of just realization that he had been running after other things to find God, it turns out after the episode we found out for 50 years he was close friends with that pastor they founded this, this institute. I don't know all the details, but I want us to know, brothers and sisters, the setup this morning, point one, is we need help. This pandemic is exposing our idols. It's exposing all the ways we find comfort apart from God. And let me be clear. I'm not trying to draw a guilt trip. You need to look at social media, fine. We need to study the disease, that's fine. We want to gather. There's a lot of ways we can be healthy. I'm not criticizing those things. But can we pay attention to our hearts? Can we pay attention to the places that we are trying to find life that are lifeless? In our passage, the prophets of Baal have gathered around this carcass and they've done their thing and it's not working. And so Elijah starts throwing out jokes toward them like, hey, where's your God? And is he, maybe he's asleep, and, he's, and it says in verse 28, and I want you to hear the description from 1 Kings 18, verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom. 
with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. They were panicking. They were panicking. Their God had not shown up. What do we do? Maybe we don't use lances. Maybe you do. There are people who actually resort to cutting. But what do you do to regain control? What are the things that we're all trying desperately to find help in in this season? I think we're roughly two weeks into this social isolation. We know that there will be much more coming in the way of actual sad uh, health news. But I think it's like this worldwide experiment. And and one of the things as Christians we're going to see are the idols of our heart just rising to the surface. Where are we saying with Prince Philip, I need help? So let's look at the solution, point number two. As you know, it didn't work for the prophets of Baal. So Elijah says, okay, it's his turn. Come to me, everybody. And this mass of people who apparently were just sitting back wondering which God was going to win, come up. We don't know how many of them there are. And Elijah begins a process. He's dug a trench, and he begins to build this altar. And I want you to notice something. Elijah is connecting these people to the covenant. He says, like, this altar represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, Israel shall, and he says, Quotes the Old Testament, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones, he builds this, uh, this altar in the name of the Lord. Then he starts having somebody pour water. I don't know who it is, but four jars of water. I don't know how big a jar is, but it's a lot of water. Why would he do that? And by the way, he repeats that three times. That's 12 jars full of water. If you're wondering where the water came during a drought, most scholars think, hey, the Carmel is really close to the Mediterranean, which would not be drinkable water, but it could be water that certainly would be used to pour on this altar. Why would he do that? If it was soaking not only the bull, but it was filling the trench. It was to show that this was not going to be a scam. He had not learned over the three and a half years a, a neat trick to show you know, a magic trick or an illusion. He was going to show and demonstrate that Yahweh was real. And that's what happens. After this water is poured over everything, listen to what Elijah does. He comes close to the altar. I love that kind of, everyone wants to stay back and God's saying, hey, come in, come close. And Elijah himself gets very close and listen to this prayer. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then a fire came down and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the, it turned to dust, and it licked up. Listen to that imagery. It licked up the water that was in the trench. Wow. God came. That imagery really happened. Um, one commentator says, you know, to have written this and to, put, and to put this down if it wasn't true would be crazy because there would be so many people saying that never happened. It happened. We believe by faith that this 
actual action happened. And, and all of that offering was gone. All of the water was gone. And I want you to notice the solution pours into the people's response. They lay down and they confess. They, he, they, they, it says, they, um, let me find it real quick. When the people saw it, verse 39, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Wow. And it took me a while to read this to finally realize something had not happened yet. There was no hint in any of this conversation at this point that there was going to be rain. At this point, in this story, these people are falling on their face proclaiming the good news of God because they saw this amazing act of this fire coming out and they hadn't yet even been told about rain, though they desperately needed rain. What's the point? They needed something more than rain. Now think about that. For three and a half years, there's been no water. Uh, livestock are dying. People are dying. It's as bad as it gets. We're in week two, and it's going to get bad. They're in week three and a half years, however many weeks, do the math. And they're able to, in the presence of Yahweh, confess that their number one need is to worship him, love him, and know that he is their God. And they do. So what's the secret? The secret is this. Third point, final point. This burnt offering of forgiveness is what we find in Jesus. And I think you all know this is coming. Jesus heals the disease. We all know the news. We all know the ratio. We know there's this infection, there's an illness. We know that it's spread more than we realize. We know that a, lot, a large part of the population will appear to not be infected by it. Though, there will be a part of the population whom everybody will look at and easily identify that they have the infection. Nonetheless, we're told this infection is everywhere. And the Bible talks about it and it's sin. And the ratio of its death is one for one. We're all wondering about the percentages. What percentage? One for one. Yes, I'm not talking about the coronavirus. I'm talking about the way sin has infected us and what God is showing these people and, and those that bow and worship understand is that their need is far greater than just some rain, though that's amazing and is needed. Our need is far greater than getting through the next two weeks, the next 18 months, whatever the length of time is, though we are begging and praying God for provisions, please, let us not take our eyes off the fact that our desperate need is to walk with God through the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ, his son. Right? Jesus goes to the cross, and I want you to hear this. He becomes the greater Elijah. In our passage, notice you have the people who, by the way, have all broken the covenant. They deserve death. And yet, God calls them near. And God provides Elijah, who does this perfect thing, and then God consumes on the other side of Elijah this altar. And I want you to hear the words again that Elijah says. When he prays to God, he says, 
O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God and that I'm your servant. And listen to what he says. He doesn't say what these people have done or what they've earned. He says, what I have done. I've done all the things in your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. That is exactly what Jesus' death on the cross represents. He has gone before the Lord, and he said, I have done everything. Remember the high priestly prayer in John 17? Lord, I have fulfilled your commandments. I have done what you've asked. Please spare these people. Please show yourself to these people. Send your Holy Spirit to us that are now the church today in the, in the modern era. But instead of putting a, a bull on an altar, he himself climbs on that cross and is crucified. This week I was meeting with, uh, via Zoom, our training uh, guys and training for elders and deacons, and we're working through a book, and one of the things it was talking about is how subtle heresies can seep in, and the heresy of docetism that, that God is, is not fully man, he's fully God, but appeared to be man, talking about the, the nature of Jesus. And, and the point the author was making was, it, it really kind of seeps into these weird places where... Uh, for example, I think one area is Jesus' pain on the cross. I think we're tempted to say, but he was God. You know, and what the Bible clearly presents is Jesus was 100% human and 100% God, but on that cross, he felt the pain of death. He felt it. The agonizing pain of death. And I think the other, most of us, maybe we don't think we're docetists, Maybe what we do is we say, yeah, but we know the end of the story. He rose. Right? And that's actually true. We don't want to miss the pain and miss the heartache and miss the weeping of, of the Friday and just miss Saturday completely and jump to Sunday. But we do want to jump to Sunday, Easter Sunday, and celebrate the resurrection. And understand this. That is our resurrection, and we already have that in Christ. So we as Christians can actually come as those who have been died with Christ and risen with Christ as we face this pandemic, as we face any troubles, and rest in the blood of Christ. This morning I was meditating. Actually, I'm listening to a Lent service from last year a good friend of mine has put out. And, the, and it reads a passage of Scripture. You listen. And then it asks questions like, what were the images, the thoughts, the feelings you had, and then it reads it again. And it's a, it's a great way to read the scripture, to just meditate, to chew. And the passage this morning is Isaiah 6. I've read it, I've heard from it, I've used it in sermons, I've preached from it, but the challenge is to sit there and receive it like I've never heard it before. And trying, for the first time, I really tried to picture, remember Isaiah 6 is the passage where Jesus, uh, the, well, the, the triune God, however you want to conceive, scholars would say, pre-incarnate Jesus is on the throne. Isaiah, who's already been a prophet, has been invited in to the throne room. And his, you know, the train of his robe fills the, the entire room, and there are these angels, these beings on either side of him. And I'm trying to not picture those like cutesy little ones, but I'm also, I, I, I'm trying to be more realistic in my this morning and just putting myself in Isaiah's spot of just, he is seeing God, and the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. 
and you just think to yourself, if you saw that place, everything else would be easy to face, right? In fact, it's so profound that he cries out, woe is me. Why? Because what have I been saying to people about this God? It's all incorrect. Look how glorious he is. Words can't express it. If we could see but a glimpse. But we would also, when he whispers, who will go? Who will go for me? We would join Isaiah, wouldn't we? Here I am. Send me. Yes or no? Who in this room? Less than 10 would go. I want to say zero without that middle part. Do you know that middle part? Here's the middle piece. One of the cherubim flew down with a coal representing the cross, touching his tongue, the very thing he needed to do his calling, burned it. And it says his guilt was removed and his sins were forgiven. That is what the cross provides. That is what you are longing for. That is what I'm longing for. All of these things we're trying to figure out is because we're desperately afraid that we'll be exposed. We aren't placing our trust in the fact that when we die, we will be called good and faithful servants on the merits of Jesus. And yet that is what he's given us. Your guilt is forgiven. Your sins are removed. That is the gospel, not for anything you've done. Brothers and sisters, in this passage, we are this mass of wayward people who waver between things, and God has said, let me send someone to you to draw you in, to show you a sacrifice, to become the sacrifice that you will worship. And that's what we do. And now, as Paul Harvey used to say, here is the rest of the story. The rest of the story. I love the way the story ends. I'm not sure I can tie it all together with a bow, but we have about a minute left. I just want you to notice. Elijah looks at Ahab, his enemy, and says, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. Was there a sound of rushing rain? No. So Ahab went and ate and drank. He didn't. He was like, great, this is awesome. I'll go, I'll go do that. But Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel, and he has his servant pray. Or no, he prays, his head between his knees, and then he has his servant go out and just simply look. So the servant, ser, servant goes out and looks toward the sea, and there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And there was a little cloud, apparently the size of a hand. I have no idea spatially how you make that declaration, but it was a little cloud, and they knew. Jesus, excuse me, God, yes, Jesus, yes, the Holy Spirit, yes, God the Father. The triune God was bringing the rain, bringing the cure, bringing in glory. I'm, I'm just struck by the fact that all of the praising, all of the coming back to the throne, a room of grace, by, by, these, by this throng of people, happened that long before the rain came. We don't know when our rain's coming. We don't know. We don't know when we'll be able to be together again in this room, when we'll be able to have graduations and 
just all the things we're missing. We don't know when we'll have our last funeral because of COVID-19. We don't know when we'll have our first. But we know that God is real. And we know that he is the one who can meet all of our needs. That we can trust 100% in him. Yes, we can watch the news. Yes, we can check Facebook. Yes, we can do things that bring comfort. But let those things be avenues to know and love Jesus more, not ways to avoid him. Let God be your source of comfort in this time. Pray to God. Seek God. Let us pray together. Lord, we relate so much, I do, to these people who seemingly knew about you and followed you, but often listened to this other cult, listened to these other explanations, listened to these other gods in place of you. Lord, none of us that I know do that, do that here as profound or pronounced as they did, but I think we know enough about our hearts to know we are prone to wonder. And in times like these, our anxieties are exposed, our false hopes are exposed. So we thank you that you are a merciful God. What we see in this passage is mercy. You give every opportunity and you prove yourself to be true. And so this morning we renew our covenant with you through repentance by saying we trust in you, we praise you, that our guilt is removed, our sins are forgiven. We praise you that right now we stand resurrected. We stand as those who are already, in one sense, dead and raised again, as if we were already in heaven. And now we can say with Isaiah, here we are, send us, send us into this problem, send us into our special fields where you would have us, whether it's loving a local neighbor, uh, being involved with legislation on some level, or in the medical uh, center, wherever we're called, let us go as missionaries for you to do the work you've given us to do for your glory. Amen.